Welcome to the Poseidon Theater Company podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back and better than ever. And we are kicking off this episode with the young, talented director, Christopher Erlinson. Hello. Hello, Christopher. So Christopher and I met because we were chit-chatting about shop and theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hails from L.A., and uh, has a very interesting story about his double major in college and a background in improv that has led him into a life of theater. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, why don't you give us a little background about your youth and growing up? My what, youth. Your youth and what <laughs> led you into this, this, this industry and this life in the arts. I, so, my, no one in my family was in theater, but they just had it. Uh, where I was growing up. Uh, I grew up uh, near um, L.A. County. I grew up in Palm Springs, California. And there were a lot of opportunities for small theater. I got involved. Uh, I did a lot of different aspects of theater. I did acting. I did a little bit of lighting design, a little bit of sound design, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And uh, I did a lot of like monologue competitions i did a lot oh, of like speech and debate uh no 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 um it was more like speech competition oh not uh, yes the speech part not the debate part yes so much but I, i'm like, terrible at arguing hey i i, I can't do that well, fast lawyer well, talk hey well copacetic uh works better for a director uh so on the speech team you were performing yeah yeah and i continued doing that i went into i started uh college at pitzer college in la and i was originally a physics dual major theater and let's repeat that a physics (laughs) dual major (laughs) with theater i had a weird split personality going on i was the the nerdiest of both worlds that's incredible and it was uh yeah i was so popular in college very um, hey. No, I, I, had a, I had a good time. It was uh, on both uh, sides of things. It was it was a good group of people, and uh, I loved it. And it was those two majors were the most time consuming majors you could select out of the entire curriculum: physics because of its lab commitment, mm-hmm. and theater because of its crew commitment. So at a certain point, I was like, oh, okay, I got to figure my shit out, and I eventually enrolled into this combined plan program and uh, land, I, I signed up for a management engineering program. I finished my last two years at the Foo Foundation, which is uh, uh, colloquially called Columbia Engineering. And So you migrated over to, that's what brought you to the East Coast. Exactly. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Uh, had the most miserable two years of my life there. Uh, it was a really growing experience. It was great. It was just, it was rough. And I've been in New York ever since. Nice. So from there, here you are, you're graduated, and your degree is in? My degree is in management engineering with a concentration in computer science, networks, that's, and database. That's amazing. And yeah. that has helped be bread and butter as you pursue your... That has put bread and butter on the table. That's right. That's I how you bring home the bacon. hedonistic life that's right. in the theater. Of the theater, of, yeah. of, late, of booze, pills, and heavy meals late at night. That's actually a quote. He's, I'm not saying this young man does that. Um, <laughs> that's from Shameless? What was that called? What's the name of that musical? Shameless? It'll come to me. Who cares? <laughs> Moving on. So then you're here in New York, and you're you have one thing that is key that people don't like to talk about in the city. You're paying your rent. So <laughs> I often tend to say that artists who 
are bringing in a form of income as you incubate your career, it's really key because when we're hungry and don't know where money's coming from, it's hard to tap into art. Mm. Uh, so you're smart and you're making that happen. So then there seems to be a definitive left when you are very aggressively in the best way possible chasing the start of your career as a director. Yeah. Yes. I, I, so during this whole time I still did what I ended up doing was I, I pursued my, uh, degree, um, kind of like focusing on that. Like the academic, it's like the sole focus was going to be, uh, physics or computer science or whatever. And then in my free time, whatever free time I had left, I would do all these other things that would have me creatively fulfilled, whether it be improv or sketch or the occasional drama, the occasional play here and there. And I came to New York and I did more and more. I did plays on the side. I didn't tell anybody about them. I just did them. Oh, you were in plays. Yeah. On the side. Yeah. Drama club style. Exactly. Low key, nothing crazy. I did a little bit more improv. I did a lot. I became obsessed with magnet theater. I actually oh, learned yes, yes, yes. a lot of like performance and directing things from the magnet theater that I apply to even dramatic developments. Oh, I love that. Would you unpack uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the Magnet Theater what that incubator is all about? Oh, it is an amazing improv comedy uh, theater in Midtown. It does... They have... um, Yeah, it's just improv and sketch comedy and musical theater comedy now. Interesting. And, uh, you know, actually, I've noticed uh, they're available on Today Ticks for anyone that's local in New York City. Uh, they have all the magnet theater shows that are playing at mm. like a ridiculously affordable price. Yeah. So that's something to catch in. So would you say that in a lot of ways that was the genesis of what has made you fully want to uh, dive into this world now? Yes. I, I mean, at least the genesis in New York. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was kind of bouncing around. I, I noticed that like, you know, I got into improv and sketch because I liked the environment of it. Yes. And then I started doing sketches like, oh, okay, I'll work with the script again. And <laughs> like, I can only like enter a stage with a blank slate so often before it drives me crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Although it was fun while I did it. I sprinted uh, for a while and I just like went all the way up to conservatory. And then I was like, all right, I got to take a break from this. And then I did sketch comedy. And I noticed during the, when I was, in the sketch comedy room, I became very opinionated, but not in a disrespectful way. It was just like I noticed that like the director would say one thing, and they'll be like, "Wouldn't it be interesting if like the actor came over there?" And then what if they took a beat and then they sat down? Or like, what if afterwards we actually saved this part where everybody laughs or freaks out until after this person said their line, and then they could go there, and then and then I was just like, "All right, I gotta calm down." And well, I, yeah, yeah. the instant mechanics of the music of show started to be more at the forefront than just being the participant. Yeah. Well, I really think that's that's the biggest first sign of any... Because when you first start coming into the notion that I want to direct, we had talked about this off mic. You even said at an early age, you started realizing that you just had a lot of opinions. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, no, but it's true. I was told when I was young, like, Aaron, you're too critical. I'm not from Long Island. I'm from California, like Chris. But, I, you, know. but yeah. no. But you I think always, I'm critical? Yeah, what are you hey, talking hey, about? Where'd you get that, that from? That production of Annie was dreck. <laughs> um, I'll never understand. I'm no. just saying it like it is. Exactly. So I got that a lot, too, and I had a lot of opinions, and 
you know, my background, I was lucky enough that they had little uh, mentoring programs to help you with that. But I do think it's an interesting thing when you start to birth the notion of directing, because what the hell does it mean, right? When you're young, you don't really know what it means. And I think that even what you're saying as you're in your mid-20s, you start to realize that there's just a point of view that maybe your other uh, cohorts on the stage don't share. And Mm -hmm. it's that Google Earth moment where you're looking down on the overall topographical map of the experience. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a interesting thing to come into. I think much in the same way, if someone is a really brilliant singer, they're like, holy shit, mm-hmm. I have the capacity to do this, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, but also it's not as quantifiable as someone who sings or dance or acts. Mm-hmm. So therein lies the advent of you realizing maybe I should have a heavier hand in actually getting the show up Mm -hmm. how long ago was that uh from where you are now that you are going into like a whole series of work three years oh so you were so wait let's talk about the timeline you graduated yeah and you were like done thank god (laughs) fuck fuck this um got pain rent it was great i loved the school it was a great yeah exactly i'll take out the fuck this no, no, you can keep it because yeah. that thought definitely. No, crossed I know the minutia. The, the minutia of academia lot. is so rough. Like, yeah. and so I'm always so impressed with people. I'm like strong work counselor. So then you're you're out of that, and then how many years you did you spend three years with Magnet? I spent probably one, one or two years. One or two years, yeah. and then from there, what was the very first thing that you decided? I'm I want to climb this mountain. I want to direct this show from top to bottom. I started – so w- what happened was I left uh, my full-time job, and I was not sure what I wanted to do because um, I was like, I don't, I, I don't know if I want to – like in theater, I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue a specific thing professionally. Like I don't know if I want to be a professional designer or living the life of an actor sounds rough. And not just because of the um, – cultural or financial constraints of it um but for another for a variety of reasons like i don't know what i want to do exactly so i i took a couple months off and then there was this living room theater company in demos park in brooklyn there we go and i said you know i'll just i never directed before let me just throw my i think i have an instinct that i would like it and i'll throw my name in the hat so this to Open up a little bit about the Damask. Uh, uh, sorry, I mispronounce it every single no, time. No, please. Ditmas Park. Ditmas Park. Oh, there we go. Ditmas okay. Park like, in Brooklyn. We had heavy Damask drapery <laughs> in Mother's Tea Room. I don't know uh, why. No, no. I think hey, I there's another I call, I call, somewhere in that. Listen, I, I called uh, Havmeyer in Brooklyn. And anyone who lives locally in Williamsburg, there's Havmeyer, that major boulevard. I called Havenmeyer oh, yeah. for years. And no one corrected me. So you're 100 percent Houston Street. Houston. Houston. Uh, so we're here. We are at at the Ditmas uh, Living Room Theater. And, yeah, Casa uh, de Beverly. Yeah. So so talk to me a little bit about what this interesting independent project was that allowed actors and directors to create very low key environment to create. Exactly. So the this lovely couple, Katie and Oren Han. Uh, shout out to you too. 
arrange this monthly showcase for new playwrights and upcoming actors. And what they do is they are they have like a bunch of work submitted to them, and then they select a few to do that month. Because what they do is like they just do three ten minute shows on average, right, for the season once a month. And they will choose two actors, and then they will choose a director, and they're synced up. So it's kind of like this blind uh, hiring process. Wow. And yeah, and it was just kind of off to the races. I directed, I think the first one I did was I directed a show by Kendra Augustine. Okay. And um, it was about these two long lost sisters who were separated from an early, or they drifted apart and they came together and they were in this hot air balloon on the last day before the apocalypse. Hey. <laughs> they were you're, just like, you're singing, you're singing my song there. So that's <laughs> it was definitely a really right my alleys. Yeah. And so I had a ton of fun with that. And then I kept doing it, and I kept doing it. I did 24-hour plays where writers have 12 hours to do one thing, and then the actors and directors pick up the baton after that, and then they put on a whole 10-minute show off book uh, at the end of that 24 hours. And I did it more and more often. I started doing 10-minute plays. I did my first 10-minute play at Secret Theater. And and Secret Theater, I know it, but can you tell our listeners what Secret Theater is? Secret Theater is this really amazing uh, black box theater, essentially. It's like an elevated Is that black the box one in Queens? In Queens, Oh, yes. that's Long Island right. City, right up the Port Square, what is the company? G. Yeah, what's the company that's attached to that? There's a company that does like Shakespeare and Classics, correct? I do. If only we had computers know. in our hands. <laughs> Keep talking. And I, let's give a shout out to these people. This is what we want, people. We need to all support each other in the yeah. community. So anyway, continue forward, Chris. Yeah, they do. Well, they, they have like one act festivals every once in a while. They have this unfringed festival that happens uh, over the summer to <laughs> as like an act of defiance against the fringe festival or something. Oh, interesting. And yeah, I did a lot of my work there. Um the first 10-minute play that I put up that was like a full-on production uh, was uh, Magic by uh, this guy named Jakob Bressler. And it was this 10-minute absurdist comedy about two magicians who are on trial for not being real magicians in this magical kingdom. So this is that most current piece of work you've done. Yeah, like that, that was yes. like the initial, that was the nascent version of the fuller production I'm doing now. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So that started off as... Oh, sorry, it wasn't, it wasn't magic. It was magic? It had a question no, mark. There it again. is. Um, so to backtrack for two seconds to give props where the Secret Theater was um, established by the Long Island City Art Center in 2017 mm -hmm. by the actor-director Richard Mazda. So there you go. Yes. That's the start of it. Yeah. Richard Mazda, strong work. So how long was the process from initially just having learning about the property of the magic play yeah. into it being fully staged recently? Into it being full, like the full-length version it is today now. Yes. It's been about a year and a half. Was that show your first experience with that whole process from top to bottom? Yes, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course. I mean, it's that's a very... Oh, you know what? That's a... Well, I did a... I So, the, actually, the first show I ever directed was at Pitzer College. And that was uh, a site-specific version of 
a play by David Weishart called Endgame, not the one by Samuel Beckett. Interesting. But yeah. 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 It was a really good play that was about this. Um, it's like it's a, it's a similar um, condition to the guy from Memento. Uh, okay. This woman has interior grade amnesia and she comes in and the barista at the cafe says, do you want the usual? And she's like, I've never been here before. And he's like, uh, okay, whatever. Uh, what do you want? And she says something along the lines of like, oh, I'll have uh, this espresso uh, with this and that. And he says, so the usual. And so she sits down at a table and there's this guy playing chess and they start talking and it finds out he knows a lot more about her oh, yes. than, he, than she realizes. So, and then the rest is, you know, the story of the of that show. But that's the premise is like a woman has interior grid amnesia and then the other, she's trying to figure out like piece together how she end up here before now, she relapses. I'm now going to have to read that play because I have definitely heard of it. Um, but obviously Beckett will overshadow. Yeah, yeah. yeah the that's name. the hardest part with the title. I'm, <laughs> cer- I'm certain whoever his agent was, it was, wait, who, who, David? David Weishart. David Weishart's agent probably was like, are you, I mean, do you, we can, I mean, there is a famous <laughs> end game. Can you imagine? It's gotta be, it's, but, this I mean, chess, this, it's it like. It has to be, it has yeah. to happen. Fair enough. So, as you're going through this, uh, Jack O'Brien said something that I thought was really interesting in an interview. When he initially first started getting, like, directing, uh, Assignments because he started off initially just as like a assistant. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean like go get coffee assistant. Mm-hmm. He said I found that I was directing with a lot of theatricality I had not yet earned, and I remember not fully. Under- <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a line. You, yeah, Let's and, unpack that. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I hear what you're saying, brother, because I remember when I first started inside this game, especially because I was fucking young, like 15, when I was given scene work, and I remember not fully understanding. I was directing with theatricality I hadn't earned yet. I think figuring out the religion of one's aesthetic is the most important part of chasing this life as a director. I'm slightly over, a little over 10 years, uh, just just a decade uh, plus, uh, older than Chris. You don't look a day hey, over 27. I'm Latin. Right We've got a lot of oil in our skin. I moisturize <laughs> every day. I bathe in keels. But that being said, is it's interesting being across from you, and I love hearing about the this beginning of your directing career because I think the thing that you do your whole career is we're always searching for the religion of our aesthetic, mm-hmm. both not just the literal physical aesthetic of the style. Cause I remember I used to be so fascinated by that when I would see shows and I'm like, how did the director come to this point? This fucking show taking place with a boat floating in the middle of the air <laughs> you know what i mean and like daisies growing from like stage right and yeah. then someone walks in with a peacock feather and i'm like this shit is hot <laughs> um no but you know like when you would see this stuff that's, when you would see stuff that's really out and i'm like what how did it happen but then as we keep doing it and you're doing exactly the right thing by continuing to just get work out there we start to figure out our religion so as you're in this process now do you find that with every show you are starting to realize what, for lack of better terms, your religion and your vocabulary is with what delights you as a director? I think I'm finding out the way to articulate it and also have more trust in my taste. Yes. Yeah. That's a key statement. Trust in your taste. Hal Prince said, 
really what people are, are hiring me for is my taste level. Hmm. That's really what I'm doing. And I never, it never occurred to me that that's, it's true. Mm-hmm. And, and Bogart said in an interview that you have to have like the total audacity that what delights you is going to delight an audience. Yeah. And so that's, uh, but at the same time, zero ego in order to facilitate the message and also to know that it's bigger than you. But that being said, I think that's a brilliant thing to hear for anyone out there directing is to begin to trust your taste level. Yes. I, so what I am finding myself articulating my taste to be a work is appealing to me if it has kinetic energy if it has a sense of mysticism or spirituality yeah if it has profound wisdom with that being said would you say that you like material that has a heightened quality to it yeah yeah like a little more heightened than than most yeah i started out actually i started out writing and directing audio plays oh that's great for another podcast in brooklyn it was called the in-between and i it was just this kind of twilight zone kind of style writing yeah um yeah and that was i advertised myself first as a sci-fi fantasy director because those were the kinds of works i really enjoyed the 24-hour play festival i did was about these like two people who were in cryostasis and they just came out of the cryostasis and now they're trying to break out of the chamber that they were in. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because when we watch all these uh, tremendous franchises and trilogies, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, dot, 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 right? Yeah. There's a reason why they hire, like the whole Royal fucking Shakespeare company is in the, <laughs> is in every, yeah. because it's so heightened in its, yeah. in its, in its science fiction and its magic and its mysticism that if you don't believe every word coming out of these people's mouths, you're doomed. Mm-hmm. No one believes. And then it's literally just a joke. Yeah. There's nothing worse than, than having people laugh at you when you're talking about fantasy. Mm-hmm. And it's also why I think they hire these badass actors for everything, even even um, uh, I don't know much about this world. I wish I did, but like even Marvel, when I do see a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. I'm like they cast some solid fucking actors mm-hmm. for all of those roles. Yeah, because you have to fucking believe them. Mm-hmm. The second we don't believe, it's a disaster. Right. So, for example, the the cooping theory, which is how we met, when you were asking me about that, I realized in the middle of rehearsal, I was like, holy shit, paranormal is hard. Like, mm. these people cannot laugh at us. Mm. And I told everyone, if you don't, like, we have to believe. And maintaining that little uh, flotation of, like, passing uh, a balloon around was so key that mm. it was a challenge that I was like, yo, these people are going to fucking either laugh at us mm-hmm. or they're going to just start talking because it was immersive and they had drinks. And when the possessions happened we knew we were doing it right when in previews right from the get you could hear a pin drop mm-hmm. and we're like oh god thank god they believe <laughs> yeah, you know what right. i'm saying but it's one of those things where oh, i think gosh. sometimes people don't realize that like sci-fi fantasy mysticism spirituality it's very challenging to keep that balloon in the air yeah you know and and that speaks to me too so like i i love hearing that that you're chasing that also, within contemporary plays, mm-hmm. I don't know. It makes me feel like there's hope to this, 
you know what I mean? Because I, sometimes I see some theater out there. No, actually, no, I, don't, I take that back. I like theater that doesn't apologize for being theater. Mm-hmm. And it's cool to hear that that's something that delights you because it gives me, hopes that, gives me hope that there are a lot of you out there who are chasing that now. Yeah. Kind of this Brecht, like, hey, we're this is in a film. Yeah, now we're in we're, we're in the theater, yo. Yeah, yeah I hey. actually I love table. I love stage readings. It, it's a weird kind of like. I feel like I get a lot of enjoyment of stage reading, not more so than like a full on production. Like I love a full on production any day of the week, but with a stage reading, your brain is already in the suspense of disbelief. Yes, because they're read they're behind a music stand. They're yes. reading the words. And then, you know, they can incorporate a little bit of blocking, a little bit of props. Yes. Um, I saw a show recently called uh, The Cave. It was a folk opera. Oh, yeah, The Cave, a folk opera. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, no yeah, another yeah, person yeah. knows of about course, it. I was like, I yeah. think I'm the only one who knows about this. Yeah, I, know Luke, about I know Lucas. Who <laughs> oh, is, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, we're actually working on a project. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on a podcast. But, yeah, so that's fantastic. I, got to, I missed it because I was away for a wedding. Let the record state on this podcast, but um, <laughs> that was their second iteration of that production. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I when I went to see it, I mean, obviously it was a full on production. They didn't have scripts in their hands, but there was something about them coming. They had three microphones out in front, right? And there's something about it that allowed the actors. They're they're telling the story. They're demonstrating the story. They're not trying to convince you like this is like a cave these this is actually like what's going on like this is an actual opium den yes, this is yes, an actual yes. it was just they gave enough to imply it to suggest it mm-hmm. tell the story but you were on board the entire time and your imagination like fills in the rest absolutely so. i mean there there's something about us that storyteller let's gather around a fire and and tell a tale yeah that is very engaging yeah. and i also think right now too with well, we just, just where we're living, it, it isn't even about the politics of the time because that's obviously fueling a lot of inspiration to, you know, express rage. But technologically, we're in a time now where we live through our thumbs, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing, right? It's very odd. Mm-hmm. And our head is down and we're sucked into this little universe that I think people really are reacting to theater because it's it's a tactile situation. We all have to get together. We have to shut up. <laughs> it, it gets dark. No. We have a collective experience. And I think almost the actual physical reality of watching people tell a story on stage is something we're craving just as human beings who used to gather around a fire. Yeah. So I think the less people apologize for something being theatrical, I think audiences, at least my impression is, they're responding to it more. Yeah. You know, as opposed to... Let me watch my problems just under brighter lights. Mm-hmm. As opposed to let's watch someone who work through their problems in a really heightened state. Yeah. You know, because we all feel like we're tripping balls through life. Mm-hmm. And I think people crave that being unpacked and visualized too. Is that something you find your people who come and see your work are responding to? So uh, the last reading I directed was well, I mean, it was an elevated stage reading. It was it was literally one rehearsal away from like pretty much being a uh, full on production because the actors just killed it. Nice, uh, but it was proof by David Auburn, and that was a more immersive, a little more realistic uh, production. You know, the actors moved in between the audiences, and it wasn't necessarily a heightened fantastical production like magic the play yeah um but that was 
a character, um, Catherine, who is a talented mathematician who's working through, who's coping with her father passing away. And you're seeing her navigating, like, her and her sister kind of navigating this, like, these different relatable situations. Did you find your background in physics made you have an empathy for that mindset of that character? Yeah. I mean, because there's not a lot of people... My experience in academia, not so much like the study of it. I don't know. It's That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but also, too, you were dwelling in your academic years in a very intensely minutia-based scientific reality. Yeah. I, I think the lifestyle I related... I, didn't, I related to Catherine, the main character, in a weird way because I was I, – I tend to – if I'm if i not careful, I will stew in my own filth. I'm a lot better now. Yeah. But I will stay in my own filth. I have no idea. I won't see it as filth. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, my God. What was I – like I was just in this Soviet Union basement with all these like computers for nine hours a day. And, you know, Catherine is kind of stewing in – she lived who was – she lived with her father who was almost a hoarder in a sense. Yes. He was a graphomaniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her sister comes by and she's like, you got to take care of yourself. You got to um, – you got to help. You got to pull yourself together. Pull your shit together, yeah. Exactly. She had the, the classic come to Jesus moment. Yeah. Yeah. What was really interesting is you see Catherine like resist it so vehemently. Mm-hmm. And you see there's all these like – ulterior motivation like you don't get to tell me what to do and it's like i you got to do this and then and all of it is ultimately based in my favorite subject grief yeah grief yeah oh yeah grief is the underlying current of i think all the best stories i mean i'm just going to say that as a blanket statement if you go to the base of most good stories even even the fantastical stories they generally start they're they're based in grief Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because that's just one of the hugest aspects of being alive Mm -hmm. we got to deal with it um and uh, I, I find myself drawn to those stories too that have some base in grief, mm-hmm. you know. And that seems to be something that people gravitate towards. And I actually, Marilyn May, the wonderful jazz iconic singer Marilyn May, who had her 90th birthday, mm-hmm. did a whole residency of her cabaret. Yeah, and she ta- and she's a complete and utter style of showmanship, show womanship. Mm-hmm. Show peopleship. That is, that someone needs to carry the torch. So the point <laughs> is, she's doing something that most people can't even do anymore. Mm. But she talks about it in her cabaret. She talks about well, more really a concert. But she says, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I come here and I get a lot of requests for songs, and I always think, and everyone always asks for sad songs, and I think, well, gosh, I, everyone came here to like party and have a good mm. time. But then she said, I realized that people are never happier than sitting in the dark listening to sad songs while they drink and cry and like <laughs> you know what I, and there's some, and I, and it made listen me think, Yo. inside out like yeah. change the view on on grief and sadness and misery you, the cartoon yeah yeah isn't that interesting that they touched on that yeah like, and how essentially we're all kind of just trying to cope yeah but there's like obviously ways that are healthier and i think audiences like it i mean look at let's use i always go back to harry potter only because to me <laughs> Harry Potter, and now now that it's on stage, people don't realize that they've been exposed to some inconceivably heightened material mm-hmm. that they've now generationally grown up on. Mm-hmm. They don't even realize they're watching theater, but Harry Potter is theater, and now it's quite literally theater. 
And look at that. It, it's the whole fucking thing is a meditation on grief. That's all. That's the whole basis. It's yeah. a complete group of people who are raging through their grief. Yeah. And it's fun. So, I mean, there's something about the grief train. I think that there's a lot of was that happened. Well, you have Harry Potter's dealing with the loss of his family. One million percent. There's uh Well, you have the loss of a society, you have the loss of power. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um and then you have like major characters that like pass away and then you see the effect like when Cedric yes. uh passes away at the tournament, you see everybody kind of come together and like like the Hufflepuffs yeah. are like, oh, and also, man. yeah, and it only further fires everyone when finally there had to be a revolution because everyone's screaming through their grief, and yeah. it isn't so much like I'm going to kill you, in as much as all this pent up aggression has been there, and like release the hounds. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When it finally happens, I'm very interested in what you're doing now, chasing your craft, learning your religion. You are going into a series of uh, stage readings, mm-hmm. and. I'm fascinated by this. April, May, and June, I'm doing a reading each month to see what production holds water. They're just three of the plays I just gravitated to the most. And In a sense, is this almost a development series for something you want to eventually fully flesh out? Yeah. Okay, got it. It's a developmental series. It's also, like, you don't... It, when you have an idea, like, oh, this wouldn't this be cool if we did it this way... I'm very eager to just put it up on its feet as soon as possible and just give it air and sunlight. And the idea is that each month I'm going to put up a stage reading with a theme. So April, I'm doing, I did a uh, play that was published. May, I'm doing an unpublished play by a friend. In June, I will do a play that I'm writing myself. Fantastic. So April was Proof by David Auburn. May is a new play, Young and Crazy, by mm-hmm. Jakob Bressler and Robert Keller. And June will be a play. I, I, I will only touch on the idea that it is about a soft-spoken attorney that goes head-to-head with a medical malpractice. And this is your first turn at playwriting? Yeah, the second. Second turn. Yeah. And so basically, so you're literally just throwing the pasta against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. That's really brilliant. And I think this is something that people should take note of because I, I have it with my own company. Right now we are currently in a state of literally development and there's a lot of great things happening. But there is that aspect to there. Uh, you've got to get a show up, right? Now, I've been directing for a long time, but I think this is something that's important to hear is that when you're – Dare I say, young Master Christopher? Um, when you're young, age is all on number. Age mind. is all on number. You're but when you're young, young, you gotta have resources. No, but here's the thing. So it, it's really important that you're getting sh- work on its feet, and that you're not just waiting for the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, again, M. Bogart said it: you'll never have enough resources. It's never going to be the fucking right time. Your schedule is never going to be lined up. Nothing's ever ready. Mm. So all you can really do is that's, just make yeah, just make the work. Yeah. Like, we sit here all the time, and I'm like, where's the money going to come from? I don't know, but let's just keep making work. And then somehow the show happens. Yeah. You know, it's every everything that we do 
in theater is a fucking miracle. Really. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it really, really, it really the is. The time the full production yeah, happens, like, it's, I have it, literally no idea. miraculously happened. I mean, granted, yeah. everyone's working their asses off and, and, and running, running, running. I had a show. Oh, I'm so no, sorry. No, no, please. Joke. No, please. I had a show. It was the first. It was No, no. It was the second full-length show I'd ever done. It was at Dixon Plays. And we oh, had nice. the one of the lead roles. Like, we went through Four actors who like came on board and then dropped out. Yes, like, three to two weeks that, before the hey, show. We, a week we before, we will do a panel about that. Discussion. Oh my god! I will never understand. I'm, let's just throw it out here from two. We got, they're we got, all lovely people. Like they all had yeah, their own reasons. 100%. It was nuts. But that it's always yeah. it's so intense when it happens. Yeah. Um, so and then so you obviously you were like hey you there the one with the look someone you be in the show? so it was uh one of the I, I i can't say which one but one of the actors who was already on board their husband had signed on uh to fill in and two days before the show went up that's what's up yeah and and he killed it and he killed it yep we 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 cheated a little bit only a little bit because we this character was able to we were able to give them a book that looked like it was part of their costume so it always looked like they were taking notes whatever um because they you know they were a uniform they were an administrative official got it and so they would all they would look down like at their line cue but they were close to being off book that's amazing and there is something about an urgent heightened um keep using the stem word today but there's something about that urgency to a, a really fast rehearsal process even a couple days that sometimes breeds the best performances because mm-hmm. you're just running on instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Instinct. That's you very have, true. You haven't had time to over rehearse. And also too, as a director, you have to sort of throw away all your nuanced notions and be like, let's get to the base of this person. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. All right. Go. Yeah. You know, that trust is everything, right? Tell me if you feel the same way about this. I am the most also intrigued by work that, terrifies me mm. where i'm like yo this is rough i don't mean rough in the sense of it's it, the material is lovely but what has to happen here emotionally is going to be really yeah is rough intense. and that fear actually motivates me to rage in the direction of a work mm. kind of probably why i'm obsessed with classics because they're horrifying right look at them a lot like, of tragedy <laughs> yeah but you're also just <laughs> looking at you know, like, yeah, you know but there you go and it seems to me that chasing that fear is it pays off because it's not easy mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's like you start to eat it's like it's like when you meet friends or you're dating somebody and the and you know and everything's too easy you get nervous right you're like this is all going too well yeah that's you know a real saying? phenomenon yeah you're yeah. like everything's going too well this isn't i don't really uh, as opposed it's quiet to, it's quiet too quiet, too quiet. And the ninjas come out exactly right woodwork I, I, but I, i'm finding that that's the material as i keep getting older that i'm obsessed with is that is there an aspect to that just in general with you jumping full force into your career now as a director that you find fans the flames i am finding that i was repulsed and terrified of intense like really dark works because i think i think there's especially in um kind of the more i don't say amateur because that sounds judgmental but in there's a little there's a lot of raw work um in the beginning stages there's yes. a lot of like really intense material like there's no holding back it all comes out of the dark um like people write 
very raw shows about um, you know assault or race or poverty and things like that. Um, and I stayed. I, w- I would watch it, and it, it's not that it was good or bad. It, even if it was really, really well done, especially if it was well done, I'd be like, oh, I would feel sick. I'll be repelled. I would stay away from it. I would not want to get involved with it or watch that kind of thing. But I recently started mentoring under uh, director uh, Damone Serafin, and there were there was a show I saw of him last a uh, few months ago, and then I started shadowing him as he's still directing called the exonerated at the secret Theater. oh yeah the exonerated of course and both times the experience grew me as a person even though i don't know how i would feel about it like a repeat to the dutchman watching it was a growing experience because it made me viscerally aware of bystander effect in a way that like i was intellectually aware of it yes i was i was like oh yeah don't be a bystander when you know shit goes down but the immersive way in which he put on this production like um it, i'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about the dutchman please and do. talk a little bit about exonerated um with dutchman it's a story about um i think it's like the 1960s and this black guy is on a train going to uh i think he's going to work or he's going no he's he's going to work he's just trying to get from point a to point b uh, this white woman comes up and starts harassing him nonstop, and it's really, it's kind of, it's really creepy. Um, and the audience is situated as fellow subway passengers, so I you're see. all kind of seeing it. And where was this stage? Secret Theater as well. Secret Theater, okay, got yeah. It. Secret Theater is a great uh, venue for that kind of thing, uh, for experimental work, immersive work, because they have this thrust stage oh, nice. immersive setting. Yes, house is sitting on all three sides of the of the stage and 18 by 30 feet square theater. Great lighting. I'm not going to talk about it, but they have (laughs) these two. So these two characters go back and forth. And then ultimately there's like a violent crime. Uh, uh, the black guy, uh, is attacked. Um, and the whole time you're sitting there, like we're just watching it happen. And then I was really uncomfortable. Uh, and then he did this interesting thing where at the end he actually, repeated the first few uh scenes of the play yes set in modern day but it was interrupted by a subway operator who came up and then like escorted the white woman in this iteration out of the subway out of the theater oh wow and then they had a discussion afterwards and then i was asking him about it it was like this whole vibe, like, did you want... Am I supposed to stop the play? Am I supposed to, like, yeah. get over, get out of the audience and tell the actors, like, cut it out? And that, that stuck with me ever since because I've become... That and one other event that happened in college made me viscerally, tangibly aware of bystander effect in a way beyond just reading it uh, out of a psychology book. But there you have it. That's, that is one of the... That's such a testimony to something that can really only happen... In live in, theater. In, in live theater. Yeah. You know, where you feel like I, I, I – where something is bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah. You know, what, what I find amazing now as I look back on <clears throat> my childhood uh, – well, well, who said it? Like all, adulthood is basically – all we're doing is recovering from our childhood. So I was watching <laughs> I, uh, Evo von Hovey's um, View from a Bridge. Uh, I saw seven seven times. And it confirmed many things for me about theater in general. But the thing that was interesting is I walked away from that production and it made me realize some really intense 
deep current of of emotion of things I hadn't really dealt with that happened when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. That never would have even fucking occurred to me. It made me realize things about my family dynamic, dot, dot, dot. It answered a lot of reasons why I like the kind of work I like. But there you go. It was a piece of theater that wasn't even talking about that particular subject specifically. And it just washed over me and became something that now I can't unlearn. Mm. You know, and that's, there's something to be said about that when it happens. And who knows? I don't think we can go in a project thinking, I'm going to have someone in the audience be changed. I want to. You can't go in and be like, lift the, you up and the lesson you I want to teach you, small person in the dark, yeah. is this. You can't really think that way. But I think that when we go headfirst into something because it's spoken to us so much and you're really chasing whatever that gut instinct is of this message, sometimes that will happen for an audience member. Yeah. You know, I'm certain that your mentor... Didn't go in and thinking, here's what I was. <laughs> I was recently booed at a production for my loud opinions. No, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think you go into it, but you think there's a message here. Also, it's like the Meryl Streep quote, uh, I'm the voice of dead people. I think that's a huge part of like what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, where we're not that everyone's dead who we who we put on, on stage, but you're you're facilitating the voices of, of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the truer you state of wanting to physicalize that and like give um justification to these souls therein lies a non-mathematic most more esoteric system of finding truth i went about that in a long way but i think that when you're chasing that truth then these moments that you've had where now you feel like you're actually a more learned person learned learned Learned. learned. You're, Why you're, not? This is more learned. Yeah. This is a theater podcast. It's just fucking incredible when it happens. You know? And there you go. Now, maybe the way you're going to look at certain subjects are going to change. But in your defense, not that there's anything to defend. In your defense, when I was 26, <laughs> I think we talked about this a little earlier. For example, actually, Tennessee Williams. I read Tennessee Williams. I'm like, this dude is fucking everything. I didn't really know what the fuck was going on. I thought I knew. You know, we're modern times. We know a lot about everything. <laughs> but then, no, but it's true. There's a lot, you know, we're like, oh, drugs, sex, booze, conflict, you know, violence. Sure, yeah. But then I hit my 30s and I re-read some Tennessee Williams and I was like, holy shit. I swear to God, man, like, a whole, it, I was, it made utter sense. I understood what was mm. happening. The same thing when I saw Head of Gabber when I was 21. I talk about this all the time. I knew, I knew, but I did not know how to achieve that yet on stage. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're doing right now is really smart because you're like, this makes me feel a certain way. I don't necessarily gravitate towards this, but I need to be exposed to it because the meditation of what we're chasing as a director, I don't think you have to be like, I've accomplished all this before I'm 30. Yeah. No one's going to say that. Yeah. So you, you can't, you're not, it's not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon. Yeah. There's a mission that you're on yeah. with your work. Even if it's hard to articulate, we're chasing something, right? Yeah. Who knows what it is? We all, we're figuring it out. What is great about mentoring outside of like the, because I have, a, 
I, I noticed that I was really picky about theater and then being and working with these other artists and kind of being thrown into these other environments are exposing me to stories that I would not choose on my own. If I went on to Daytex and I looked through, so, you know, a yeah. natural instinct is like, yeah. look at the Broadway musicals or shows and then like, yeah, shiny things, shiny things. Yeah, exactly. Of course, yes. Um, Which there, those have complete merit too. I fucking love Broadway musicals. Oh yeah. They're amazing. They're the best. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So then both is, I, I like both. And I like it, to, uh, I like my, uh, dinner plate to have all servings. That is such a great analogy because I was going to say you were expanding your palate. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> yeah. That's what you it's do. all about taste. It is all about taste. Okay. Hey, yeah. we brought it back. We're here all night, folks. Uh, my boyfriend and I one night had a prime example of that. He'd never seen Phantom and I'm like, Phantom is everything. I don't care what anyone says. It's everything. <laughs> okay. And uh, listen, something doesn't run for 30 ish years because it sucks. So just breathe that in. <laughs> Snooty patooties. Um, so anyway, so I took him to see Phantom, and then that night we went. We went and saw Pan Pan Theater mm-hmm. from Ireland, which is an incredible theater company. They're fucking amazing, and they did a deconstructed version of the Seagull on a bare stage, wearing tutus, <laughs> and it was fucking. It was everything, <laughs> but it was such a wonderful evening of equally satisfying theater. Henry yeah. Street Settlement. There it is. Ha ha. Um, uh, pain for the sins of my youth when I forget things. So uh, Henry Street Settlement. So we went there and we saw Pan Pan and it was such a great evening of theater mm-hmm. to see this epic, iconic piece of Broadway and then to go see some fucking deep B-side cut theater. And my boyfriend said it too. He's like, this was such a fucking awesome plate of disparaging styles and they were both equally satisfying, mm-hmm. equally satisfying. And, you know, the, the more we expand our palette, I think the more we're going to have to offer an audience. Because after all, I mean, it's, it's all for them, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing because, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm perpetually thinking about their experience. Yeah. At all times. Does this read? I, yes. Yes. I, th- there's different ways to take on it. There's the idea that, like, I don't give a damn what anybody else thinks, which is not an invalid or valid way of thinking. It's you just can, like that. Hey, sometimes ev- it works really, really well. That yeah. like, There's I all don't kinds give of ways a damn. to create. I'm yeah. going to speak my truth. Yes. Um, I am more, I, in the, especially in a professional context. 100%. I take the idea of consideration and what an audience is going through. Yes during a production and the respect you're giving them that they've got on the subway. They've yes, spent money. exactly. They've, they've, exactly. They've carved out time. They These, decided not to watch Netflix and they yes. decided to come all the way they, out they, from hey, Astoria. They might've decided see to your show 100%. Like these people might've decided to be like, you know what? I, we were going to get drinks, but I'm going to go see a play. Yeah. And we all know that people, even theater people, yeah. sometimes when I, as I'm sure you're the same way as much as we love theater and this is literally our life. Sometimes I'm, I'm even like, mm, yeah, <laughs> and nice. I press buy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I know it's going to be good, but even I get that modern day, I mean, I could go home and just make a blue apron and maybe like, uh, but I'm like, no, you know what? Fuck this. Let's go see theater, man. This is your life. Yeah. So there's that. And you give it the risk, but you always feel like you're taking a fucking risk. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
it, it's very to see a show to yeah. see a show there's oh, always a yeah, risk it's the risk visceral. that visceral like because i don't have buyer's remorse but i go all right well let's see how this goes yeah like come on seven yeah please be good that anxiety of just like if a show goes well i mean not to crap on anybody's shows but when a, sh- when a show is like a little too raw or when it's like awkward or, or not or not fully don't yeah not fully realized not or? fully achieved ian yeah. mccallan used that and i was like that's a great way he goes it wasn't a fully achieved production <laughs> he would say that about shows he was in and i'm like that's such a great that what a great description sometimes yeah. when i watch something I'm like this is just simply not a fully achieved production yeah Whether exactly it emotional it's not good it's not bad it's just yeah exactly it's still nascent it's still yeah, developing. Yeah, we're looking at the. It's like uh, we're looking at the plumbing instead of the the fucking the whole like beauty of the architecture. Right. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It, that's how people learn, but it is a risk. Yeah. And I think you and I are both on the same page, and this is very encouraging. I hope a lot of people are that you honor that risk that the audience took. Yeah. You know, the honoring of that. I feel like an audience feels it right away. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't think it makes you better or worse if you do honor it, but I think there's an energy to the work of people who are always thinking about the audience that you can feel because mm-hmm. you instantly feel when the lights go up and you you felt it. You feel that they're like, bam, we're telling you a story. Yeah. This is an experience for you. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it's in my fucking head, whatever, dot, dot, dot. Yes, I have lots of opinions, but this is for you. Yeah. You're the most important thing here right now. Yeah. We're going to. Because, I mean, we were going to do it even if you didn't show up. So, <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, that, fuck us. We've been doing this. Now yeah. we got to see what you think. Yeah. You know what I mean? We've cooked dinner. I hope it tastes good. Exactly. It's this confident, it's like a theater in the name of service, but it's still confident in itself. One million percent. Well, it's, you know, it's like anyone who runs any organization, you know, or look, look at the people who run nonprofits. Like real, not real. I take that back. Theater is a definitively real nonprofit. But people who run charitable, <laughs> no, but people who run charitable yeah. nonprofits, right? Yeah. Like these people are making seven dollars. Let's be real. Yeah. I mean, after a year. taxes, a year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And they are of service to the mission of what they're doing, mm-hmm. and that's what motivates them, and that's why a lot of these charities become successful because everyone is fucking determined to be of service to the mission that is ultimately for the people. Yeah. It isn't about their own egos. Their their brilliance is running it, but it's not the point. Yeah. You know? And I also like the aspect of, we're being a little indulgent now, but I like kind of that no one really knows who I am if you're not my friend. I I, I, I delight in watching people have an experience and they and I I know that I I did that for them. But I kind of like that they don't know it was me. Yeah. There's something really lovely in that. Because it's like you're not just – it's like an honest observation of you – like people enjoyed themselves as yeah. a product of your work. They didn't enjoy it just because – Yeah. Oh, you're they, cool. I mean they might have come because hey, Aaron sure. Salazar. Dot, dot, dot. But, you know, yeah. generally no. I mean I got to say that was the one thing because our shows were so intimate. It's something that's been very gratifying is I'm like I don't know any of these people. Mm-hmm. And, and they're enjoying themselves. What a miracle. What mm-hmm. a fucking miracle. You know, and and it's the part I think that it seems that you and I had that similar push and pull, where, as an actor, I, as much as it's really awesome to be like applauded and people laugh at you, I felt a little, I felt a little uh, indulgent to me. 
Does that make oh, sense? Oh, yeah. I know exactly what like, you're talking I knew, about. I li- it was almost like how people are like, I don't do drugs because I know I'd like them. I was like, I really enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy this feeling, and I feel like it could kill me. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I actually like that feeling of I people abs- clapping and applauding. I- totally know what you're talking you know what about saying? i cannot tell you how mm. real that phenomenon was because that was the decision of like well i kind of like professional performance but there's there's always something weird there is some kind of guilt or some kind of anxiety yes. before during and after a show that did not so with there was there's the acting phase and there's directing phase yes and during acting there's always like a little bit of it's okay to be you know, have a little bit of dissatisfaction and to strive for betterment. For 100 perfection. million percent. Um, but there's something neurotic and acting made me more of a neurotic So neurotic. Because I'm already, like, not for nothing. Yeah. Like, for, I'm already vain. I'm already, yeah. like, completely. And this doesn't apply ne- to everybody. Everyone, but yeah, no, for but me, that's I, what the effect it had on my personality, on my appetite. And I, I was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to live a life where, like, I need to be validated by other people. I want to define the room. I want to choose the work. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. I yes, want yes, to yes, empower yes. other people as well as empower myself. Yes, 100% because I – exactly. I'm already neurotic. I'm already inherently vain. I had all those little <laughs> – no, but I had those little things that actually make for good – which makes for good stage presence for an actor. You know what I mean? When you yeah. have like those weird uh, pockets of confidence, ultimately chocolate-covered – in insecurity mm-hmm. you know what i mean vulnerability but vulnerability yeah. and insecurity so like i had all that going for me and it's true when i was acting it just it brought it all to the surface yeah. it's like a biore strip you took it off and you're like oh my god look at all this shit <laughs> do you know what i'm saying i'm like yeah. this is actually making me feel like they make and i actually I, I that's why i really admire the actors who are what i call conduits yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're there to be of channels to the service. Yeah. I mean, they're there to be a channel to the material. And I, I, to me, that's what interests me. I'm like, okay, I hear your voice, like in a play, right? Mm-hmm. Or a voice is coming out of me, in your case, for writing. So let's give that voice all the attention. Not really my voice. You know what I'm saying? But I do think that, you know, I, I'm always – I think actors who have found that balance are – are winning something because yeah. I think it's hard. It's a very odd thing to be praised for the physical reality of your body as a conduit to material. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. We don't deal with that as directors. You know yeah. what I'm saying? We can look like anything. If we're cute, it helps. But like, <laughs> no, not for nothing. But you know, if you're cute and you're a director, you're almost rare. Not that because no, but because, you're not on stage. Hey, why don't you look like you sh- like you know? It's a weird yeah. thing when people say, "Do you act too?" And I'm like, "Nope." I just, I just say no. I don't even say that I have a background. <laughs> in it. I'm like, sure, don't. No, no, um, yeah, fucking no. Yeah. Nope. I almost don't want to know what. And there, but yeah. there you have it. We don't have. The I'll be bur- yeah, yeah. I'll, that judgmental part of my exactly right. brain will activate. We don't have that pressure, so I do think that for actors to balance that that garners respect for me that's what i'm trying to say i yeah people who are able to yeah yeah balance it when you meet someone and they're like they've got a cool aesthetic Mm -hmm. and they have a sense of they have a nice technique that technique in the sense that they know how to behave in a fucking rehearsal room yeah they know how to take direction they know how to be blocked they come in they're ready and they're using all their tools to the best of their ability it's it's amazing when it Mm -hmm. happens you know, because we've seen the people who aren't. And most, I think, actually, actors 
act out out of just insecurity. I don't think it's I don't think it's that they think they're better than anyone else. I think they feel vulnerable and like we've discussed this off mic. I I'll never understand the berating or humiliating of, of an actor. It doesn't make any sense. I to never me. I don't I've yell wa- at people. I, I, I we've yeah. both watched it happen. Yeah. Or it's happened to me when I was an actor. Yeah. And I'm like, it's... why are you speaking so badly to me? Like and I, I said this once to a director and I was very, very fucking young. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm not I'm not your friend. You can't <laughs> speak to me like this. Mm. Like we're not friends. <laughs> like the the intimacy of your words of trying to like yell at me as if you understand me sonically as a person outside of these walls is so profoundly wrong yeah and i remember like standing up for myself at a very young age with a major major company and a producer and he didn't say shit to me i didn't get fired everyone's like he's fired because i was like you cannot speak to me this way Mm. this is uh, like you're being crazy and i was only 19 and i'm glad that that happened to me because i wasn't wrong yeah the way he was behaving was inconceivable yeah he was and attacking you spoke up at the moment at the moment because i was like no 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 and actually i encourage any actor out there do not let people talk crazy to you mm-hmm. if that person's talking crazy to you fuck that project mm-hmm. who cares like move on i mean maybe that's not the right thing to say to someone but there's no reason to ever be spoken to badly or to may be made to feel like some emotional artistic choice you're making is worthy of me humiliating you because it's not exactly what i'm thinking yeah. I mean, maybe some people react to that. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah. I The only time I, I've never had to raise my voice. I've, I've had to raise my voice, but it wasn't. <laughs> it, I've, I've had to yell. Well, yeah. yeah. I've so, had to raise my voice collectively at just the to get team people's attention. Yeah. Because things on occasion go apeshit. Sure. Yeah. But I've certainly have would never like humiliate someone yeah. for their choice yes like talking basically yelling like, like i always liken it to this on occasion something happens and someone has to ring the fucking bell of the ship mm-hmm. so the whole crew gets back because we are off course right that has happened once or twice yeah yeah but the actual like here's a special spotlight on you and now i'm gonna yell at you oh yeah holy Hell shit no. are you crazy i do that nope because the person will resist. They'll shrink back into their shell, and then nothing you say will get through, and it'll just look bad or feel bad. And it's like, and it serves no purpose. The only time I would – I've not had to do this, but the only time I would ever raise or yell is if somebody else yells. It's like if somebody – I will only get mean if someone else is mean, and I haven't had to well, do it Well, it's yet. an odd thing, right? Because there's that dynamic in the rehearsal room where you think to yourself, okay, there, someone has to be leading the ship. And then at the same time, too, we've also seen when actors talk crazy to directors. Mm-hmm. And I feel oh, like, sure, yeah. now I feel like when that happens, there has to be a way to deal with it. Because the second that the, I think, a director allows themselves to be the total pacifist, you've also lost the respect of your team. Right. They don't want to see you cuss this dude out. But it's certainly okay to say, I think, I think you know, let's take a five. Yeah, and also, postpone I, it. Yeah, you're, you're being a little inappropriate right now. Yeah. <laughs> we got to stop. I've actually never had anyone talk crazy to me in a rehearsal. Uh, so I haven't really had that. And the couple times it did, I actually just stared at them in silence while the whole cast just cringed and they were like, <laughs> to the actor. It's, it's what I've done. I just stared the person in the eye and that's I was an like, interesting tactic. I just dead silence. And the whole team was like, girl, you are, <laughs> you look cra- you're looking crazy. Yeah. Cause I was just like, I, I'm not going to even respond to what you're saying right now. Cause you're, I'm 
I don't. Doesn't that, matter to response. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter to response. There's yeah. that Lucille Bluth. Oh my god, I'm, I'm just going off now. That Lucille. Bluth. Uh, do you watch Arrested Development? I've watched a couple episodes where he says something about something about like an ex-wife or a girlfriend, and she goes, "If that's a veiled criticism of me, I won't hear it." Or respond to it. And they just stare at her. <laughs> I remember like having that moment where I was like, I'm not even going to actually say anything. I'm just going to sit here and not respond. But anyway, so we, we digress. We could go on and on and on about directing. But, you know, at, this, at the end of the day, what you're doing is absolutely right. And I'm really glad that we've got to meet. Oh, because Because no, because honestly, too, like, uh, you know, directors, we're not like actors. We don't really hang out. That's true. We don't really hang out. And it's not because I don't think we're open. Because every director I've actually now had interaction with, we're very like, hey, what's up? Like, what are you doing? Because there's room for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's not – I don't feel competitive against directors the way I think actors feel to each other. Because mm-hmm. we're all living in our own little camp. Well, uh, and we're yeah. all chasing the exact same goal. We're just trying to make work Yeah, for pe- more than ourselves. Yeah. So, like, I can't just think of myself. I'm like, good. I'm glad you're making work. Like, yeah, I think work. It, w- yeah. when you're full-time acting, there's, like, this illusion of scarcity. But as a director, it's like you're creating the opportunity for yourself. So there isn't an inherent – Not usually there isn't this feeling of competition I think the only fighting com- over resources. And exactly. I think the only maybe competition we feel is not even competition as much as – there is a inherent healthy envy when you're like, oh, wow, he got the budget. Great. She got the budget. Great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the time I'm like, oh. I have thought that. I've oh. seen shows and I'm like, like oh, who paid who for this? Paid for this? How, How come I can't yes. raise like $100,000 for my show? Exactly. And then I get to myself, my I'm just mind. like, God damn, does this person pay their own rent? What's <laughs> happening here? No, that'll happen. But I'm never angry about the work. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And actually, I, I live for... There's so many new uh, I, organizations yeah. and people that are coming together that are making such dope, dope, dope work mm-hmm. that I, I think that we are going to be the people that years from now, everyone's like, how do you all know each other? Yeah. And we're like, oh, we just met doing this dot, 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 and just started talking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there is, and also in general, I think there is room for everyone. Not everyone's going to make it, and everyone also will have different rises in their careers, but at the end of the day, I think that if any of us are producing work in the city, I we forget, but we are succeeding. Mm-hmm. We're succeeding. We're, yeah. we're making work in New York. Absolutely. And people, yeah. we're making work in New York, and people that aren't our friends are coming. Right. So so there is there's a level of success there. Mm. I have to remind myself of this, and I think it's something that's important as directors in the city Especially those of us that have completely said, I'm making work in fucking New York City. Yeah. We are competing with the gazillionaires. Yeah. So we have to be kind to ourselves to know that in a city of unlimited choices, when people show up to hang out in the dark with you, you're fucking doing something right. Yeah. Whether it's a stage reading, whether it's a full production, whether it's a play that maybe you directed because you had an opportunity and you're like, this isn't even my cup of tea. But I'm going to try to make this the best it can be. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The fact that they come is a miracle. Yeah. It's a miracle. They could go see a goddamn celebrity. Sometimes for the same amount of money your show is, and they come. Yeah. it's I'm perpetually grateful and humbled by that. And I think it's important to remember for anyone out there listening that's creating work that 
don't get caught up in the Instagram life of thinking everyone else is doing better than you. If you're actually every day raging forward towards this goal, you're succeeding. Mm-hmm. I everyone, mean, I can't remember where I read this, but it's like everyone has their own time zone. It's like one million percent. Someone like gets their, someone becomes a prodigy, um, and ends up working in uh, entry level job until they're thirty. Someone works in entry level until they're thirty, and then gets their diploma, and then like becomes a CEO. One person is in this situation. One person is in another situation. So it's always like people are just in different time zones. Like it's not this. It's not like everybody started at the same starting line and sprinting for the same finish line. It's just it's so more multidimensional than that. One million percent. And also, I think as directors, there is no template to your journey. The only thing I think is key is that you keep making work happen. And that you try to get it out. But there's so many paths to take with this life. You know, and it's also why, you know, some directors have degrees in directing and some don't because that's not really the point. Obviously, you, you, one has to be trained in theater. Duh. Right, right. I mean, that's just, there's, there's too much technical reality to, to what you're doing to not know what the hell you're doing in that sense. But... You know, everyone's going about this in their own way. And I think that's something that's key that I'm trying to even do with this podcast is to start to show everyone's journey and how different it is, yet everyone is led to the same place of making work. Um, but that being said, Christopher, tell us where we can um, stay connected with you via your social media and your webpage and come see your next gigs. So the next uh, – so if you want to follow me, uh, my – website is christopherurlinson.com and that is where i post the next public thing i'm doing yeah some of the stuff i've been doing has been more private it's been industry or it's been developmental workshops and it's been like smaller audiences the next so this month i'm doing a reading of uh young and crazy but going forward um i'll probably be doing readings at the artist co-op in june Nice. I will have more public uh, shows over the summer. Nice. So, so just follow him on uh, Christopher Erlinson. Yes. Uh, I will. If you guys check us out on SoundCloud, there'll be the uh, link to his website there. And uh, you can stay in touch with Christopher and just keep it coming. Also, if you have any questions for us, feel free to uh, hit us up or anything you want um, to hear us talk about on this podcast at info at PoseidonTheaterCompany.com. You can check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes. Make sure to rate and subscribe and feel free to write a review. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Christopher, what a pleasure this has been today. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yes, man. We will uh, be looking forward to seeing you continue to rise. Thank you for listening to the Poseidon Theater Company podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us. Connect with PTC on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can visit us at PoseidonTheaterCompany.com. That's theater with an R-E. Join in the conversation with any ideas or questions you may have at info at PoseidonTheaterCompany.com. From all of us at PTC, we thank you for your interest and passion in the arts. Let's continue communicating and creating.